Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the acquisition issue that just won't go away. Next steps for one of the biggest cloud procurements ever and tailoring your zero trust strategy to your mission. It's Monday, November 14th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. The Cloud Together Summit is coming this Thursday, featuring speakers from the National Security Agency, CISA, DISA, and a lot more. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see the full list of speakers and register through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The General Services Administration Office of Inspector General says the Federal Acquisition Service should kill a pilot program that uses transactional data reporting. The Commissioner of FAST, Sonny Hashmi, says he'll continue that pilot. Roger Waldron is president of the Coalition for Government Procurement. He's former acting deputy chief acquisition officer at GSA. Roger, thanks for coming on the program. You called recently the transactional data reporting program a logical step in the evolution of the mass program. Why is it so? Welcome. Well, first, Francis, thanks for having me on the show. And um, not not to get too historical on your procurement history, but... Um, <laughs> You know, the, uh, the price reduction clause on the schedules programs dates from the 1950s originally and federal acquisition. Um, and it evolved over time to the 1980s, 1982. In fact, there's an MAS um, policy document that sort of set the frame, you know, continued to set the framework for the program with the price reduction clause. And, and first, it started out as a discount schedule and marketing data, the submission of all kinds of uh, wide-ranging information about a company's commercial pricing. Um, and that stayed in place until a court case in the 90s said, gee, this thing is extremely broad, almost to the point people can't comply with it. That led to reforms in the uh, early to mid-90s where you got the, com- the current commercial sales practices format and a reform price reduction clause. You know, originally, a price reduction clause said anytime you offered a, price, a lower price to a federal entity, you had to offer that price, uh, that became the price on the contract. Well, that basically creates a static market because each transaction stands on itself in a certain sense under, you know, 10,000 widgets is a different price than five widgets, right? So um, so that, re- that, that requirement was eliminated. The price reduction clause was set up to track commercial pricing. CSP limited the disclosures that companies had to make as compared to the old DSMD, um, and that stayed in place now currently to the current day, and um, transactional data reporting is just sort of the next logical step because TDR is the reporting of pricing at the order level, um, and that's the most relevant information to the government customer and to the marketplace and to industry, and that's also true because today, you know, you have continuous open seasons on the schedules. Schedules aren't are non-mandatory. There's statutory and regulatory competition requirements. There's e-tools, e-buy that are all used to create a you know a dynamic marketplace where prices you know are set at the order level for competition, which is a fundamentally different model than where the old CSP and price reduction clause um, remain you know the only avenue in town. So, so TDR is reflecting the changes in the marketplace and the relevancy of the data at the order level. You write that TDR is useful for the government and industry. It's easy based on the description that you just gave to see why it's beneficial for government. 
How is it useful to industry, Roger? For number one, for the companies, tracking and reporting that data across an entire the entire enterprise under the schedules program becomes more focused for the company. And in addition, you know, some of this data, you know, obviously some pricing information will be disclosed publicly, but there'll be pricing patterns and some information based on what you see on the schedule contracts that will be made available. And also, I think it's significant and, and very important to, to industry. The price reduction clause is essentially an anti-competitive, almost antitrust um, provision in that it restricts the ability of government contractors to compete in the commercial marketplace. Because under the PRC, if you, add, if you offer a lower price under certain terms and conditions to a commercial customer, then you have to offer that to government. Um, you know, that's criticized in the private markets as an antitrust behavior. I don't know why the government is, is doing it to companies who are trying to support the mission. And then lastly, on the PRC, it's a huge burden in terms of tracking. You, people don't understand the amount of uh, tr- training that goes into m- uh, monitoring and complying with the clause for all employees, the tracking of price reductions, and again, the restriction on competition. Those things are eliminated. I think it will drive lower prices. And, and I have one more point about that is that even GSA looking at the PRC, it's not a very effective tool at the end of the day. Only 3% of price reductions, according to GSA itself, are, result, are directly result of PRC. So it's a tool that where the costs far outweigh the benefits. And TDR, under TDR, the PRC does not apply. You write in this piece, uh, there are some stakeholders that have expressed concerns about TDR's use. They worry about the reduction in the totality of information provided by contractors. They question whether TDR will yield the lowest cost alternative to the government. I think a couple of the days that you're referring to are people at the Office of Inspector General at GSA. They were on the program mm, a couple of weeks back talking about um, a, a report that they did on the TDR program where they recommended, as I referenced in the introduction, that um, that fast kill the TDR pilot that's been going on for six years. Um, you write those concerns may be misplaced. Why so, Roger? Uh, well, first, you know, I'd say just focusing on price in the context of lowest cost alternative is a LPTA approach at the end of the day, right? Um, you know, and this is a discussion and a you know an approach that GSA took when I was there. Um, it's the totality of the, of the circumstances, the total acquisition cost that you should be looking at, not just solely at the price. Price is one element of that. Value is an element of that. Um, warranty provisions are elements of that. Um, the administrative cost savings and using the streamlined schedules at the order level, um, supply chain resiliency and monitoring under the schedules program, you know, particularly TAA compliance, um, saving time, time is money at the order level. Um, all those things go into, you know, you know, what is the overall lowest cost for the federal government or the total acquisition cost. And that's a, a more accurate measure. And it's something that GSA philosophically is when, when reforms of the schedules took place in the 90s, and the outing procedures were changed, and then the factors were added in there, what can be considered. That's what it was all about. Looking at solely at price, um, I don't think it serves the taxpayer at the end of the day, and I don't think it serves customer agency missions. 
You write, in light of the foregoing, and the foregoing is references that Sonny Hashmi made to reasons why that he wants to continue the TDR program, protecting national security through supply chain risk management, reducing the impact of climate change, reducing regulatory and administrative burden, reducing pricing in the uh, multiple award schedule program. You write, GSA's desire to uh, evolve its process via the use of TDR is not without merit. It deserves a full airing before being dismissed out of hand what does a full airing look like to you what at what point would some organization whether it's fast or the ig or somebody else be able to say okay we have all the information that we need and we should continue down this path or maybe it's time to look for a different direction well i think um you know i'd say gsa and sunny hashmi's uh the commissioner's comments that gsa is going to continue down this path is is a welcome approach again it's just the logical evolution of the program to focus on the highly relevant data uh, in the marketplace. And, and then I would say, you know, the, the rulemaking process has already taken place. Um, you know, uh, people can provide their feedback and input. All stakeholders have a right to do that and an opportunity to do that. For example, GSA just went through the Paperwork Reduction Act exercise for TDR. Um, the Coalition for Government Procurement submitted comments on that, supportive of TDR laying out the benefits of it and uh, and providing feedback on the assessments of the burdens to the public. Um, that's an important step in the consideration. I think GSA is um, you know correct in focusing on tr- addressing training for contracting folks in the use of the TDR and ongoing development of that uh, that training and rolling out that training. I think is important. You know, it's a good policy. You folks will definitely have an opportunity to weigh in. Um, but we think it's the again we we think it's a logical step to focus on the dynamic marketplace and the data that uh, coming out of that marketplace in terms of what folks are paying um, and what that means. And I think the commission is right; it does address supply chain resiliency and security issues because you have a central place where all that information is. It can support sustainability. And it does drive more effective pricing, according to GSA's own analysis um, as well. Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Great insight, as always. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to Roger's blog post in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. The number one CRM, Salesforce, Customer 360 for Public Sector is an integrated platform for public services. It features relationship management, case management, and lots more. To learn more, go to salesforce.com slash government. The chief information officer of the Defense Department says its huge cloud contract is on track for award next month. John Sherman confirmed that timeline at DIS's Industry Day, November 7th. Jack Wilmer is CEO of CoreForce. He's former Chief Information Security Officer at DOD. Jack, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. The question I think people have been asking since the beginning of the, the JEDI RFI process has been, what happens next after this cloud capability comes into the Defense Department? They're able to start to leverage it. Welcome, Jack. Yeah, Francis, thank you very much. Really appreciate you having me on your show again. Um, 
you know, in terms of what happens next, it I think it is important uh, to look back at what the intent of, you know, the department in getting Jedi awarded was. Uh, and it wasn't just having an enterprise cloud capability out. It was really about setting up the infrastructure to enable us to deliver, to deliver capability to the warfighter faster. Uh, and so with that uh, came challenges on, you know, standing up and getting in a cloud accredited across security domains, looking at how to transfer uh, information across security domains, supporting the tactical environment. Uh, and I think fundamentally, and this is where my old office was most involved, uh, really looking at how we need to change accreditation practices to be able to get that capability out uh, to support mission faster. What does that look like, changing that that accreditation capability? Yeah, so a lot of it is, you know, the I think this has probably been talked about for decades now in terms of the, uh, you know, multi-month waiting process once an application or a version is delivered of going through your standard certification and accreditation cycle. And, and uh, you know, you can invoke any of the buzzwords of DevSecOps and things like that. Um, but part of the idea was that as we start building uh, more cloud native capabilities and start moving applications and capabilities into the cloud, uh, there's opportunities to be able to leverage some of these more modern development techniques uh, that allow us to build more security in and security checks in upfront so that we can have the same level of assurance of security of the capabilities, uh, but without having to endure a multi-month waiting process uh, once the development is finished. General Groen and General Shanahan before him both talked about the importance of this cloud capability in its various forms, whatever the current form was, to JADC2. How fast is it reasonable to expect if this award happens in December the way that, that John Sherman says, and if it's a format that doesn't uh, generate a number of protests and delays, again, because of those protests, What's the timeline look like for this cap uh, capacity, this capability to actually reach the hands of warfighters, Jack? Yeah, uh, Francis, I think it's a great question. So I think there's there's a couple angles to that. And the first, as you mentioned, is if the award happens, you know, as planned. I think the department has done some great things in changing the acquisition strategy that's going to make it much more likely to be awarded within uh, a reasonable time frame of what they're projecting. Um, and so I think that's a really important piece in terms of actually rolling the capability out. Uh, to me, it's important to note that there's a number of environments that are all included in JWCC, environments that support the tactical edge and disconnected uh, intermittent and low bandwidth environments uh, and environments across different security domains. And so, uh, again, part of the strategy that we had before uh, was to rapidly make available uh, the environments that are really easy uh, and well understood, which are like unclass environments in standard traditional cloud uh, capabilities, and then really put our effort on getting the accreditation, the certification, and making available uh, those other environments. So I do think that you're going to see likely uh, a multi-month waiting period before you can get secret and top secret instances fully approved and accredited, uh, and uh, those that will be deployed forward are also going to be separate efforts, I think, to really be able to look at uh, what the impact of those are, what they mean, how they'll be uh, employed. And so a lot of that work is what we were planning on doing uh, following the Jedi Award uh, that I think still will need to be done for these. And, and the last thing I'll say on that is I think there's some really good service efforts that have gone on in the time period since uh, that I know that, uh, you know, 
General Grown and, and uh, Shanahan were able to take advantage of in terms of uh, you know, service-specific clouds. Uh, and so much of the learning that we thought we needed to do for JEDI has actually occurred through the stand-up of these service-specific clouds. But we also know that there's going to be differences as you look at an enterprise instance. I wonder if the broader maturation of the cloud enterprise in the department uh, is helpful here too, because my sense is at the time that the JEDI contract happened, there was... Uh, uh, an understanding, even though it wasn't accurate, and even though Dana Deasy, I think, tried to e- eliminate that understanding, there was a an understanding that Jedi was all or nothing for cloud in the department. And I think he even said on my television show, and I don't remember if it was about Jedi, I don't remember the timeline, but this is only going to be about 10% of the overall cloud posture of the defense department, that there will be other places. And we've seen that with the army moving out, the Navy moving out, air force uh, development on cloud one in the air force just this week. So this is, this does become now, I think they're a, a, a mere piece of the mosaic rather than the entire picture of cloud in the department, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think uh, to your point, I think that's always been the vision uh, that, you know, there's the enterprise cloud, there's fit for purpose clouds, there's there's a recognition that uh, in the DoD cloud strategy, there's a lot of different pieces to the puzzle. Uh, but I will say an enterprise cloud is a critically important piece. And when you look at a lot of the objectives of interoperability, uh, you mentioned before about JADC2 and how this is a pillar for that. Uh, I think having the interoperability that an enterprise cloud can bring is really important. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you don't still need uh, potentially service-specific answers. Uh, I think General Skinner has also talked about you know, a value proposition and that there's a belief that as we roll out uh, something at an enterprise scale, it's going to be a greater value proposition for the services. And you may see migrations from uh, service-specific environments to the enterprise uh, version. But I think that uh, to your point, there will be some percentage of DoD cloud computing that's on the enterprise uh, environment or environments. Um, And I think that there will always be the fit for purpose, the uh, service-specific instances for uh, other capabilities as well um the uh the defense department has signed out its zero trust strategy uh has a new chief software officers uh information about both of those at defensescoop.com this doesn't this doesn't feel like these are ad hoc one-off events it seems like there's a strategy here to me at least does it seem that way to you yeah, absolutely. And and first, big congratulations to Rob Vietmeyer. I think that's an awesome position for him to be in. I, I've known him for a number of years, and I think he will be a, a great force in helping to advance that. And I think it really is a recognition by the department of the importance of software. And, and when you think about, uh, you, you know, you hear in other domains how there, there's no company that's not a tech company anymore, whether you're an automobile manufacturer or even, you know, someone that produces food or, or something like that. Pretty much every company is now a tech company. And I think the department absolutely has realized the importance of technology and specifically software uh, in advancing what the department is trying to do in being able to serve its mission and, and support the warfighter. And uh, so I think that standing up a chief software officer for the department is a great, great step in that recognition. Uh, and then to your point, the zero trust principles, that's something that we've now been talking about for five to six years. It seems like 
the way the department operates, if you look at cloud adoption, things like that, that's probably about the amount of time it takes for the department to really start getting serious uh, about moving out with those concepts that we've done enough diligence and fleshing out and pilots and things like that uh, and are really ready to move out into uh, production. And so I love seeing the signal. I love the uh, aggressive stance of looking at you know, setting targets to uh, fully migrate within five years, things like that, because I think if you don't uh, set you, you know, a strong sense of purpose and speed uh, with these types of initiatives, they're just going to flounder. Uh, so I'm really excited to see what uh, comes of, frankly, that new role of chief software officer, as well as that strategy. John Sherman talked about the five-year uh, deadline back at, in August at Fed Talks. He, he kind of warned everybody, this is coming and we know this is aggressive. Is it aspirational, do you think, or is it a makeable deadline, Jack? I, I mean, I believe the department still has systems that are running on mainframes uh, that were built decades ago. I think that the the real question is how you define what success in five years is. If you're literally talking about changing the access to every single system and every piece of data in the department, I would say it's definitely an aspirational goal. But I think that you can set milestones uh, that are achievable that move you a good bit of progress towards that goal um, w- without having to, uh, you know, really apply it to everything. And I think, you know, the other thing that is true for cloud, it's going to be true for zero trust and most other domains is that in general, there's a value proposition to be had. There's going to be some systems that are the low hanging fruit, uh, but high impact that you really want to focus on first. And then there's going to be others that would be tremendously difficult to migrate to a newer model uh, where there's also not as much of a, you know, maybe a threat against those systems, things like that. And so uh, one thing that I, I do know about uh, the, you know, Mr. Sherman and the team is that they are very pra- pragmatic uh, and I think are going to take all of that into account in terms of setting the objectives and focusing on the biggest impact, uh, you know, easiest to migrate systems first. Jack Wilmer, great to talk to you as always. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, Francis. Appreciate it. You can read more about the DOD cloud procurement in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. Salesforce is the connected platform that powers government health services. Salesforce helps public entities engage with their health constituents on a single intelligent platform to improve care outcomes from anywhere. Learn more at sfdc.co slash psh. Government cyber leaders say agencies should tailor their zero-trust strategies to their missions. Stephen Haselhorst is zero-trust program lead at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. He tells Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash there's a lot more to his agency than people think. Most of us know us just by uh, that logo that you have on your banks where you get a, uh, your money's insured up to $250,000. Uh, we do far more than that. Uh, our mission is to make sure that we maintain the stability and confidence in the banking system for the United States so that people have confidence that they can use our banks or and their money is safe. Um, we do that in many ways by uh, uh, performing multiple audits, uh, verifying that they're meeting standards, uh, the banks are, and uh, helping banks out whenever they're uh, in trouble. So uh, we do that in, in numerous ways. And I would say that we're a little bit of a unique organization where um, we have, uh, a far greater number of users that are external users to uh, uh, our network than ourselves. Um, so it, it's a little bit of a di- unique dynamic and a little bit more difficult than some organizations might have it when you're trying to, for instance, adopt zero trust. 
Yeah, I bet. Well, t- talk to me a little, if you would, about uh, some of your top priorities in the next year uh, to meet federal zero trust security requirements, and then maybe your thoughts looking longer term. Sure. Um, so great question. And uh, for one, we're definitely tracking with uh, OMB 2209 and the requirements that they have us to meet and trying to march to that cadence that uh, we meet those objectives. Uh, but really, we are um making sure that we're organizing around zero trust. So establishing a zero trust program or, or uh, as I call it, zero trust task force, a group that is dedicated, focused, um, has other people in, in, in the different task areas or pillar areas supporting us. Um, I think it's far more important that in the early years, you make sure you're organized around zero trust. You make sure that you know what it is that your strategy is, what it is that you want to accomplish your objectives, um, because it's really easy to get, uh, uh, um, kind of lost in the, the the sea of vendors and capabilities that are out there and easy to try to just quickly uh, get some win and procure some products, implement some products, but then you'll find yourself that um, you're not capable of operating those products or you haven't really shifted the mindset of your staff. And therefore, uh, you might be operating these products that are very capable of performing uh, what we'd like to call zero trust like capabilities but you might operate them in traditional ways. So uh, in the first uh, couple of years or year, uh, we're definitely focused on organizing, establishing the foundations. Um, we're uh, recognizing what investments we have in place today that need uh, maybe a little bit of uh, uh, a, a reshaping in order to align us to our zero trust. There's a lot of activities that organizations have that they might not recognize that are already aligned. You might be modernizing your um, your identity management solution. So we'll continue in the FDIC to optimize those investments as we look into the, the three-year forecast and begin to transform our perimeter into more of the, the identity-based perimeter model. Uh, we'll begin to uh, capitalize on investments we have today with uh, collecting telemetry, collecting information and making it actionable, making it something that we can um, use automation, use response, uh, and, and therefore, also, uh, our investments that we have in identity, getting a centralized identity uh, hub, et cetera, and then further furthering that cost and going towards more of a passwordless model. So I think it's a progression, um, and I think it's important that we really focus in the early years on organizing yourself around zero trust and what you really want to accomplish well, one of the recurring themes that we've heard speaking with various agencies is, is kind of the common challenge of how to implement zero trust principles across multiple networks or domains or functional silos in various agencies. How is FDIC planning to try to overcome that and, and make sure that uh, the, the various pillars, if you will, of zero trust really uh, is de- developed and delivered on a uniform basis across the enterprise? That's another great question. And I, I, I hate to keep coming back to organizing, but uh, it's important that you set your foundations. It's important that you don't just go out and try to buy products to solve uh, niche problems or, or, or think that you're solving some niche problems. So what we're doing at the FDIC is uh, very early on, uh, when I came on board, we started establishing what we call our functional requirements. By establishing functional requirements, these aren't checklist-driven type requirements. These are functional requirements that you use for um, designing, for establishing your SOPs, 
uh, for uh, establishing the way we need to be thinking about our solutions. Uh, further, after developing the requirements, we've established a uh, solution uh, architecture that's agnostic to network. So whether you're on premise, whether you're on the cloud, whether on, you're on an isolated siloed network, you can follow the solutions architecture. It's not vendor specific, but it's very specific about how the solutions need to integrate, how they need to operate, how they need to be automated so that um, uh, different organizations, different groups across the, the uh, enterprise can look at these documents, can fall in line with them. And um, it, it's extremely impossible to say that, that one zero trust program manager is gonna architect all of the networks and, and everything will be the same because that one person did it. Instead, we're, we're focusing on giving the right guidance to the organization so that all can follow and be uh, in line. And there's always gonna be exceptions, but you wanna try to reduce those exceptions. Well, thank you for sharing that. Another um, common issue, uh, I think, is the you know, fact that federal agencies have a lot of additional compliance requirements uh, that they have to follow as part of their cybersecurity uh, procedures that, that are codified by law. So I'm interested to hear what concerns do you have about federal zero trust adoption to ensure that agencies are actually able to achieve more comprehensive and holistic security uh, in contrast to you know, still having to, in many cases, do kind of a piecemeal check the box security protection plan. And how do you reconcile that? Yeah, so that's a that's a, a, a conversation that comes up a lot. And there's many that want to make zero trust a checklist. There's many that want to make zero trust part of the, the compliance framework. We'll just ask people to do these things. Um, the way I like to describe it, and, and I do, is that uh, zero trust can uh, supplement your compliance program can support your compliance program, can help you meet a lot of your compliance uh, objectives that you have to meet, but zero trust can never be looked as the uh, checklist driven activity. Uh, zero trust is a, definitely a mindset that we uh, instill in our organization. Um, we all start thinking one way and, and then towards that, that zero trust model. Um, it's very easy to, uh, for instance, uh, create a checklist that says you will implement MFA. Um, and that's one of the compliance. We will uh, comply with multi-factor authentication, but we also wanna use um, our identity for attribute-based access control. There's no checklist that you're gonna have that says you need to have five attributes, 10 attributes. That's more of the, the mindset and the maturity that we start implementing. Um, so I challenge everybody to um, look at Zero Trust as an enabler to meet some of their compliance uh, standards. Uh, but also look at it beyond a checklist. Don't make it a, a one and done. You're never going to have, uh, don't, don't build a, a, a checklist that says, I've got the, the pillar, the, the identity pillar complete, the endpoint pillar complete. It's a maturity. Well, we're going to continue to enhance, but all, all those enhancements uh, do uh, align and help support our compliance uh, requirements. Absolutely. Um, and then lastly, Stephen, um, how is FDIC planning to unify automation and orchestration across those five pillars you were just referring to, you know, around identity devices, networks, uh, et cetera, to truly transform your security posture? So uh, automation is up and foremost, uh, the most important thing, one of the most important things I would say. Um, and uh, you'll hear this from any uh, zero trust practitioner. Um, the way that we were approaching it, um, I'll go back to our, our functional requirements and our uh, solutions architecture. We need to think about um, what we need to integrate and what we need to automate from the start. 
Uh, now, technology is improving and all of our the industry and, and the commercial space is helping out tremendously build solutions that can be integrated through open APIs, uh, that can be integrated through a lot of automations and partnerships that they have built between themselves. That helps us out a lot. Uh, but it doesn't mean that day one, you're going to have a fully automated environment. But it does mean that from day one, you have to be thinking about the solutions that you're implementing, how you're implementing them, so that you can enable the progression of automation through your environment. Um, because I like to say, you'll never achieve zero trust if we continue to follow the same models of today, where we're very manually driven, static configuration, static policies. And instead, we got to be driving towards these dynamic policies based on attributes, based on identity, device, and other contexts that enable us to uh, have this, this uh, mobile dynamic enterprise um, that otherwise would be impossible. Stephen Hazelhorst of the FDIC with Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C., James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every day and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.